Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. It is a single narrative in which every story, every character points beyond itself to one who is greater. There is a true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void to create a new people of God. There is a true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve so we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up and discipline us. There is a true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. There is a true and better rock of Moses, who struck with the rod of God's justice, now gives us water in the desert. There is a true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. There is a true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. The Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. It is a single narrative that points to one person, Jesus. Before we move into a portrait and profile this morning, I would like to just echo what was said in the announcement slide. Uh, if you served in VBS this week, thank you so much. It was a successful week, a great week, great ministry we do. And if you were there, if you served, you helped in any way, just from the church uh, as a whole, we just want to say thank you for doing that. Thank you to Carol and Janae for just uh, once again another great year of putting that together and uh, making that happen and making a difference this week sowing seed and sharing the love of Jesus Christ. The other thing I would remind you, the 5K is less than two weeks, right? Two weeks from yesterday. If you want a t-shirt, you need to sign up by this Friday, okay? You can sign up all the way till race day, but um, uh, if you want a t-shirt, sign up for this Friday. Romans chapter 15 and verse four says this. It says, everything that was written in the past Everything that was written in the, in the Old Testament was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope, right? So the Old Testament was written for one reason, to teach us. And in teaching us, it does two things. It gives us encouragement that leads to hope. As the guy said in the bumper video, they're not just a bunch of discombobulated stories. They're all pointing to one thing. That's the life and the person of Jesus Christ. But in the meantime, as they're pointing to him, they are revealing to us the character and the nature of God and how God works with, deals with us as people, right? We get to see, um, and thank God, things have really, the, the, God has revealed himself more and more and more, and we get to live in the day of, of the New Testament uh, day of grace where we've seen the Son and we know the truth fully but back then they didn't know as much but we get to see how God works with people and it's teaching us 
So often I have thought about the lives of the Old Testament saints. I've thought about the lives in the Old Testament. It's reminded me, oh yeah, man, if God was patient with that guy, he can definitely be patient with me, right? And if God, you know, and it teaches us so much. And so this summer we're just trying to walk through primarily the Old Testament scriptures so we can get uh, the, the story of God through the story of people that God carefully recorded and wrote in the Old Testament. Last week, we saw it kind of all kicked off. Abraham, God's gonna, uh, in all the peoples of the earth, God wants to start his own people. Why? So he can begin to show the rest of the world who he is, his character, how he, how he wants to uh, work with people and what he wants to do, the salvation he wants to bring. That people of God was, was pointing to one one thing, Jesus Christ coming into the earth, the final and clearest revelation of God. And Abraham starts that, and we look through his life with all its warts and its pimples and its, its shortcomings, and yet we see a man who is a model, an example of faith to us. And... Um, Again, it's hard to speak about Abraham in one week. It's hard to speak about who I want to talk about today in one week. So I'm really bumping along the highlights here. And I joked, or I told them my intent for a service was to be snappy. And yeah, you guys got here and they were still in service, weren't they? So I'm really going fast today, or second service. Do you still believe that? Okay, I'm going to try. But. Today I want to continue that story kind of chronologically through scripture um, to a guy I consider to be fascinating. A guy that when I get to heaven, I want to sit down with this guy. I just kind of want to be around him. I want to sit at his table. Kind of want to sense like what was, you know, because he's so, he's so fascinating. I think it's somebody that they would do an e-true story, Hollywood story on. Because he has so many, just like so many other figures, he has such glaring weaknesses, and yet he has some strengths to him. And yet, as we just kind of pull back his story, there's things we can learn that teach us about how God uh, how God wants to work in our lives. And that's the story of Jacob. So you have Abraham, has Isaac, right, the promised son, and Isaac then has two sons. And we would pick that up in Genesis chapter 25, where we read in, in verse 21, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. And the Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. Now, as she's pregnant, the scriptures say the babies, so she's gonna have twins, jostled each other within her. It's kind of a nice phrase, jostled. They just jostled one another. You know, like, you always feel the baby kicking, and I know what that is like. Well, it's like they just jostled one another. When you really start to look at the Hebrew word, guess what they were doing? Already in the womb, they are fighting with one another. This jostling is like already animosity in the womb between these two sons. And it was so bad, and there must have been so much movement, and it was so like, what is going on inside of me? You know, two kids already fighting. That Rebecca is like, why is this happening to me? What is going on? And so she went to the Lord. And she said, pray to the Lord, why is this, what, explain to me. There was no, you know, 
OBGYN then, I guess, to like make her help her understand or, or you know, and I'm pretty sure he wouldn't have understood this, this story. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. Well, that's not the case in that culture. But in this case, it's gonna happen, the Lord said. And when the time came for her to give birth, there were two boys in her womb. There were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red and his whole body was like a hairy garment. All right? (laughs) So that's interesting. In fact, he was so hairy that he, uh, they named him Harry. Honestly, that's what Esau means in Hebrew. He's so hairy, they just called him Harry. We actually joke with Ben that he should name his son Harry, Harry Hartford. <laughs> He's not going for it. Harry or Hank, Hank Hartford or Harry Hartford. Well, this guy, truly, Esau is just Harry. I mean, that's kind of, I don't know why they include this detail, but they do. Well, for later in the story. After this, his brother came out. But when Jacob came out, he came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So as Esau's coming out, Jacob's coming next, and he's grabbing a hold of Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Jacob is the term in in Hebrew for heel grasper. Well, heel grasper, it's a Hebrew idiom that literally means a deceptive person, a cunning person, an underhanded person. Jacob is born already, and this is his demeanor coming out of the womb as someone who is deceptive, a deceiver. And that's what his very name meant. Isaac was 60 when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up. Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country. Jacob was a quiet man, staying among the tents. Isaac, um, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau. But Rebekah loved Jacob. I mean, Esau is kind of a a man's man. He's a crazy kind of wild guy. Um, We actually would read later, Um, The New Testament helps us to understand Esau a little bit more. Esau was a man who was just kind of, he was just wild, uncontrolled, strong desire, strong appetites. Hebrews says this about Esau, that he was a sexually immoral man. He was just godless, is what it says about Esau. Um, And we read that Jacob is is not that way. Um, He's kind of a guy who lives in the shadows, Yet, his very nature is deceptive, deceiving. And and, and again, there's so many sermons that could spring out of this, right? But Esau favored, or Isaac favored Esau, and Rebekah favored Jacob. Guess what? It never works out very well. The scriptures always, that's one thing consistently through the lives of the Old Testament. Favored sons and daughters it doesn't bring about, uh, it brings about heartache in families. So that's just a good word for, for you and for me. I mean, right? Um, I got four kids, so. Um, but we read that once when Jacob was cooking, so this is the first kind of interaction we have, right? And this is the first thing we learn about Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, 
Esau came in from the open country and he was famished. It's that word, famished, right? (laughs) Famished means famished. But have you ever been there before? I I know in our culture, we we don't miss too many meals. We don't, you know, we get a little bit hungry and we just go to the fridge or we open the pantry, right? And you got a granola bar or something. And, and, uh, but there's been a few times in my life where I have gotten super hungry. Like, I, and this is just a kind of a, you probably already know this, but that's why like when you schedule medical procedures, don't do the afternoon, okay? Two, two reasons why. One, I'm not thrilled about a doctor who's already on his fifth procedure, right? And he's just like, oh, I've been doing this all day, you know? Like, that's me, that's my body. I want him to be sharp and fresh. The other thing is, guess what? Normally for medical procedures, you gotta do what? You gotta fast, right? And so if you're two o'clock in the afternoon and you haven't eaten since midnight the night before, you ever been there? Like, I've gotten so hungry in those times, I know you're looking at me like, what a softy. Like, you do too. Come on, you've gotten so used to it. That, um, like, whatever was coming up, whatever they were going to do to me, I kind of lost sight of that because I was so hungry. Right? All I can think about is just, I just got to eat. That's Esau. He's so famished. And no doubt in that culture, they didn't have, you know, anyway. He probably hadn't ate for quite a while. He had been out hunting and long trip and, and not modern convenience, and he's famished. And he said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. And Jacob replied, this is just the character of this guy. Instead of, hey, have some. I made it. You're hungry. He's a, he's a cunning guy. He's like, he realizes Esau's so hungry and he, he takes advantage of a situation. And he says, first, before I give you this, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau says. What good is the birthright to me? It's not gonna matter if I die of hunger if I have a birthright or not. Birthright's a big deal in that culture. Um, kind of be cool if it still was, right? Because I'm a firstborn. I would have benefited from this. If you were the firstborn, man, you had the birthright. That means that the inheritance, two-thirds of it was yours. Doesn't matter how many kids, two-thirds of it's going to you. That means that when there's a family squabble and you're trying to figure out family dynamics and there's an issue with this and that, you're not just one of the whole group trying to figure out what to do. You get to be the judge. With the birthright, the firstborn, firstborn basically says, here's what we're gonna do. You got authority. Uh, and then the third thing was, you always got the blessing of the father. This idea from, it was a blessing of the father, but it was a blessing from God. It's a big deal. And Jacob wants that. And so he throws this out here. Now the scriptures tell us Esau, because he was godless, did not value this birthright, did not care about God, did not care about the blessing of God, was so consumed by his own appetites, his own desires, his own way, that honestly, the scripture in Hebrews says that he gave up his birthright for a single meal. It's like, that is so stupid. 
That was so dumb, is what the scriptures say about Esau later. What were you thinking? You gave up thousands of uh, you know, dollars and authority and blessing just for a single meal, but Esau just didn't really care about it. He didn't consider God, and so really, okay, you can have my birthright. I'm so hungry in that moment. And we find that we're introduced to Jacob, and man, he is a deceiver. He absolutely is the heel grasper. Jacob gave Esau some bread and some stew and he ate and drank and he got up and left. And so we're introduced to this character, Jacob. You would read down through the next chapter about Isaac having to survive with his family, with the boys through a famine, and how they got through that. And, and uh, again, Isaac is doing what Abraham did. Uh, he's lying about who his wife is. And God comes through for him again, and protects the family again. And actually out of that, Isaac finds blessing. And you would see this environment of a well-to-do wealthy family, Isaac and the two boys. And things are going along. And yet Isaac begins to, in chapter 27, begins to think that he's gonna die. He, he begins to fear that he's starting to get so old that he's about ready to pass. And he hasn't passed on the blessing to his oldest son, Esau. And so he, come, he calls Esau in and he says, listen, I feel like I'm coming to the end of my days, although that wasn't true, but he felt like it at the time. He says, I need to pass the blessing on to you. And so I want you to go out, I want you to hunt, I want you to get this animal, I want you to bring back, I want you to prepare it, and you and I will share this meal together that you have hunted and prepared, and in that meal I will bless you, and you will get to experience the blessing. Well Esau, um, again, he's just not, you know, he's already sold his birthright off, basically, but he still thinks he's in line for the blessing, I guess, and, and, um, and so he goes out, well, Rebecca, mom here. Man, what a dysfunctional family. I'm just telling you. If your family's dysfunctional, we'll take some hope and encouragement that there was dysfunctional families in the, in the, in the scriptures, right? Because mom overhears this conversation. And mom favors Jacob. She wants Jacob to have the blessing. And so she goes into Jacob, she runs in, and she says, Jacob, I just heard Isaac talking to Esau, and he's gonna bless him, he's gonna give him the family blessing. I tell you what, let's do this. I'm gonna cook up one of Isaac's favorite meals, and, and then you're gonna go in, and you're gonna seek the blessing. And Jacob's like, whoa, what? You know, like, he's a deceiver, but this seems a little bit even too much to him. But mom pushes him in that direction. She says, listen, he's like, well, I'm gonna get cursed He's gonna figure it out. She said, no, I'll take the blame. Go ahead and do this, I'll take the blame. And she talks Jacob into doing it. Jacob's willing to do it. But he's also like, hey, well, just a second. I know dad's eyesight's really bad, so he can't hardly see. The scriptures say he was basically blind. But um, I'm not Esau. Like, uh, what are we gonna do about that? And she's like, well, you know what? We're gonna take some animal skin and we're gonna put it on you. And so when your father wants to hug you and, and feel you, like, he's gonna think it's Esau. Esau must have been really hairy. Like, like I mean, like, animal? Like, wow. I mean, really hairy. I mean, again, Harry is his name. And so they do this. She gets goat skin. She cooks up the meal. Jacob walks in. And he says, my father, yes, my son, who is it? And Jacob says to his father, I am Esau, 
your firstborn. What a lying, conniving, deceptive man. I have done as you told me. Lie, lie, lie. Please sit up and, and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. Isaac answered, well, how did you get it so quickly? I just sent you out. Lie, lie, lie. The Lord gave me success. And Isaac said to Jacob, come here so I can touch you, my son, to know whether you really are my son Esau or not. He's, something's not right here. So Jacob goes close to his father and he touches him and says, the voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him, for his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau. So he proceeded to bless him. Again, he asked, are you really my son, Esau? I am. And he says, my son, bring me some of your game to eat so that I may give you my blessing. And Jacob brought it to him and he ate and he brought some wine and he drank. And then his, Jacob blessed him. Are you getting the idea of who this guy is? Like the first stories we read about Jacob, he is actually absolutely fulfilling his own name. He's a deceiver. Well, you know how that story goes, right? He gets the blessing. Esau comes back, realizes what's happened. Esau is off the charts furious. He goes into daddy, whines a little bit. He stole my birthright. He stole my blessing. You know, there's this whole scene of him and it, the scriptures say it was like he wept, but it really wasn't with repentance. He just was sorry he missed out. He didn't really care about what the birthright or the blessing was. He just wanted the material benefit from it. Um, there's a whole message in itself there. Like there's messages everywhere here. And we read in verse 41 of that chapter the, these words. It says that Esau was so furious with Jacob that he thought, I'm gonna wait because my dad might be dying and I'm not gonna kill Jacob now. But once this season's over, I am going to kill my brother Jacob. And you know what? Rebecca overhears this. She goes to Jacob and says, you gotta get out of here. You gotta run. And she concocts this story with, with Isaac and says, listen, Esau's married these women around here. We don't like them. You can read about that earlier. He married two women and it grieved Isaac and Rebekah who he chose to marry. And she says, if Jacob stays around here, he's gonna do the same thing. He needs to get out of here. And basically, Jacob is sent out on the run for his life from his home because of his own deceptive actions and attitudes. And we read about Jacob going 500 miles away from home. The promised one, the blessed one, is on the run because of his own character. Now, in the middle of his on the run, I want to just show you a little something that happened while he was on the run. In verse 10 of chapter 28, Jacob's by himself running to uh, it was Rebekah's brother, Laban. It was his uncle's house. His uncle's, well, these weren't houses, all right? These were like huge spreads. He's running there. And we read, though, that on his journey, chapter 28, verse 10, Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. And when he left, when he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. 
Taking one of the stones, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I'm the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you're lying. Verse 15, I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. I just want you to see that scene. You see a man who's on the run for his own actions, and God still is going to where he's at and making promises to him. Even when Jacob has absolutely messed this situation up, God has not forsaken him. And God is faithful to come to him and continue to make promises to him. You see that? In the middle of that 500 mile journey, Jacob finally arrives at Laban's house. And we read in the story, and I hope that you'll read this this week. Go back and read more details. I don't have time for all the details. But basically, he shows up, and one of the first people he sees is Laban's daughter, Rachel. Now, this is like, you know, Jacob's a smooth operator, okay? Because when he meets Rachel, it's obvious from what the scriptures tell us later, he was absolutely smitten. He was head over heels with her. In fact, we see he's quite a little Don Juan DeMarco um, because he, uh, when he sees her, one of the first things he does is he, he shows off his strength to her. Like, he moves this huge stone so she can do something. Like, you know, it's obvious I'm, I, I'm a tough guy here. You know, he's, he's proving to her, like, and then two verses later, he's weeping very bitterly with her, like, this guy has it all. He's got the emotions, he's got the strength, he's just showing all of his, uh, to, to Rachel. And we read that he, he meets Rachel, and he's head over heels over her. He meets Laban, and him and Laban come to an agreement. He says, this is why I'm here. Can I work for you? And Laban, is, he says, absolutely. And so this chapter of Jacob's life kind of goes like this, as you're reading in, in, verse, uh, in chapter uh, 29. We read verse 16. Laban had two daughters. One was Leah. The older was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes. Um, best I can tell you what that means is just reading and reading, you know, this, she wasn't much of a looker. I guess that's the way they said back then that well, she's got weak eyes. <laughs> it's, like, it's kind of one of those, she has a really nice personality, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Kind of hard to understand what it was, but she was not because look at what he says about Rachel. Rachel was lovely in form, and beautiful. And Jacob was in love with Rachel and says, Laban, I'll work for you for seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Right? Like, this is pretty impressive. And Laban says, well, it's better that I give her to you than some of the men around here. Stay here with me. And sure enough, Jacob sticks around and works seven years to get Rachel the scriptures say they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. It's a pretty cool love story, to be honest. I mean, this is, this is cool. It's working seven years. And basically, he entered into a contract where Rachel became his wife. 
but yet he was not able to consummate that marriage until seven years. Seven years comes up. Jacob's, all right, here we go. You know, and the scriptures say, he goes to Laban and says, hey, seven years is up, let's have the wedding so I can go in and sleep with her. He's pumped. And Laban, you remember, I'm not quite sure of all the details of how the wedding's gone down in that day. But basically, there was this whole celebration. You know, Rachel's gonna be his wife. He's excited. The wedding night, evidently, I don't know if it's that night or a few days later, is it's here. And I don't know if Jacob was just, you know, tossed already, three sheets to the wind. And the way it went down, the lady was wearing a veil. And bottom line, the end of the day ended like this. Jacob wakes up and realizes that he has consummated a marriage with Leah and not Rachel. And it's set in stone, man. This is the way it is. Seven years, contracted with Rachel. This is it. Wakes up and realizes Laban has deceived him. The deceiver becomes the deceived. Right? Do you think he was a little bit torqued? The same words are kind of used as are used with Esau. Like, are you kidding me? He's angry. And he goes to Laban and says, what have you done to me? And Laban said, well, you know, honestly, we don't give away the younger daughter before the other daughter. So I just had to do this in the right order. But if you work seven more years for me, I'll give you Rachel. And Jacob says, okay. Man, it's, that's, I mean, he was head over heels, right? And so he worked seven more years. He is living the dream, isn't he? The blessed one is 500 miles from home. He's worked 14 years and he's got two wives. And he's living with his father-in-law, which didn't sound very good. And the, the chapter of Jacob's life at that time was, he lives, he works for Laban. Rachel, his loved one, cannot have kids. They realize she's barren. Leah can have kids. And he has four sons with Leah. Then Leah stops being able to have children. And Rachel is thinking, I'm four kids behind. That's a big deal then, right? Like there is no sense of, two kids and a two-car garage and white picket fence, right? Part of the blessing then was, can you have children? How many can you have? And Rachel's like, I'm way behind. Jacob's gonna lose his love for me. I gotta do something. So she offers to Jacob her maidservant, Bilhah, I think's her name. And Jacob takes Bilhah and he has two kids with her. Well, Leah starts to get panicked. Now this, the, the tables are, sw- I mean, this is like truly like a Mary, Mari Povich episode, right? Like, I'm not kidding. Like, oh no, now he's gonna, you know, Rachel's maidservant. I can't, we both can't have kids. So here, Jacob, here's my maidservant, Zilpah. And he has two more kids. He's absolutely living the dream, man. Four wives and eight kids. Yeah. Sounds pretty, pretty tense to me. Then all of a sudden Leah can have kids and she has two. And then all of a sudden Rachel can have kids and she has the last two, Joseph and Benjamin. And here's Jacob. Four wives, 
12 kids working for his father-in-law. But in the midst of that, God begins to bless him. And I'm not gonna spend time with how, but he was a good businessman. He was shrewd and the scriptures share what he did with his livestock and he began to grow. And in fact, he got so big that he got bigger than Laban, his father-in-law. And his father-in-law, his son, so it'd be his brother-in-laws, began to get jealous. And they began to worry that Jacob was getting so big that Laban was gonna be so impressed with him. He was gonna say, listen, I'm giving everything to Jacob because that guy knows what he's doing. And so there's this huge, right, fight. And at the end of the story, basically, I'm skipping two or three chapters, you can read them. He's gotta leave and he takes off. And Laban chases him because Laban doesn't want him to leave And actually, we read in there where Rachel had actually stolen some of Laban's, like, in that day you had, like, today we have, like, the family china, right? You pass down these heirlooms. Well, then there was, I don't know, same kind of thing, household goods. But it was really symbolic. Whoever had the household goods got the inheritance. And Rachel steals her dad's household goods on the way out of town. And Laban comes in, he has no idea Rachel stole him, he thinks Jacob stole him. So he thinks Jacob's leaving and he's taken this inheritance where he can come back and say, hey, I have, the, I have the goods, I get everything. So he's really mad, right? He goes thundering after Jacob and we have this whole scene where finally they come to an agreement where you leave, you, you leave, you leave me alone and I'll leave you alone and we're not gonna cross paths. And so all of a sudden he's got it's just what a, what a chapter of Jacob's life. But in that, he feels like the Lord is, he has another dream, and the Lord tells him he needs to go back home. But he realizes on his way back home that he's gonna have to go through territory that is controlled by Esau. And it flips him out. And he's scared. And he begins to realize, oh no, Esau's gonna... Esau is going to, he's going to kill me. And so in chapter 32, we read how he begins to, to send out somebody to tell Esau, hey, I'm coming through. And we read in verse 6 of chapter 32, the messenger comes back to Jacob and he says, we went to tell Esau that you're going through part of his land, and now he is coming to meet you and he has 400 men. <laughs> what do you think Jacob's thinking? So he devises this plan where he separates his camp into two camps so that if he slaughters one, there's still people surviving. And then he puts these groups of people together where he sends them to Esau, one at a time, a first group. They get there, hey, we're from Jacob, here's a bunch of stuff. Second group, hey, we're from Jacob, here's a bunch of stuff. And the scriptures say that he thinks, if I give him all these gifts, it'll finally pacify his anger. And Jacob has sent all this out and he's in this position where he is super vulnerable. And everything he's done in his life to him is is about to come to an end. It's all gonna catch up to him. And he's not going to get a pass on his. And we read in chapter 32 that the story goes this way. That night Jacob got up and he took his two wives, his two maidservants and his 11 sons and crossed the Jabbok. And after he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. And then Jacob was alone. And this is such a weird scene to me, but it's such an important scene in Scripture. He's alone, and all of a sudden a man appears. And I don't know how it went down or why, 
But they started wrestling. I'm not sure what that's all about. But he felt threatened by this guy, and they start wrestling. And they wrestled all night long. And we read the scriptures say that when the man saw that he could not overpower him, it's a weird way to, 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 to write that, but he saw that Jacob was not going to stop struggling with him. He touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that it was, it was put out of place. And then the man said, let me go, it's daybreak. And Jacob replied, I will not let you go until you bless me. And the man asked him, what is your name? And Jacob has reached a point in his life where he's at the end of his rope. There's no reason to deceive. There's nothing. He just feels like he's at the very end. And so he answers, my name is Jacob. And when he says that, he, listen, I'm a deceiver. That guy, you know, he knew what that meant. Jacob is finally being transparent for the first time in his life. And the man says, your name will no longer be Jacob, but it will be Israel. Because you have struggled with God and with man and have overcome. Jacob says to him, what's your name? And he says, why do you ask? And he blessed him. And Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. It's the scene where Jacob wrestles with God himself. God appeared to him and wrestles with him. And he allows him to wrestle all night long. There's not anybody who believes that God wasn't in control of that situation. But he allowed him to wrestle. It's so symbolic of Jacob's life. Struggle, struggle, struggle. I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna keep. I'm gonna make a way. I'm gonna. And finally, God says, listen, enough. And so he cripples Jacob so that they say the rest of his days he walked with a limp. But in that moment, when he cripples him and Jacob's realizing, my struggle has come to an end, he still is like, I don't know who you are, but please bless me. Well, he begins to realize who it is. It's God himself, and he screams out for the blessing of God. And God, in that moment, Jacob comes to the end of himself, the end of his struggle. And God meets him at the end of his struggle at the end of himself, and changes the whole direction, trajectory of his life. Changes his name from deceiver to Israel. You recognize that name? Right? Promised people. Promised. He changes it when Jacob came to the end of himself. You know, Jacob went and met Esau. He's now limping. He's not able to defend himself very well, and he has no fear because he came face to face with God and God promised him once again. And you know what? There's a few things I just want to lift from Jacob's life. There's a lot more. It goes on. Remember the 12 sons he had or the 12 tribes of Israel. You remember Joseph was one of those. You remember his story. You remember that his sons deceived Jacob again with Joseph, lied to him about Joseph being dead. Remember Um, all that But there's four things I want to remind you from this story. God is faithful even when we are faithless. Jacob is on the run for his own actions. And God meets him there and gives him that dream and promises him things. And you know what? He called that place Bethel, the house of God. And I want to remind you that God will always consistently move toward us. 
We often have this idea that when we blow it, we screw up, when we're maybe turning away from God, that God just kind of does this. He just kind of, okay, whatever, I'm not gonna. No, God faithfully is always moving toward us, reaching out toward us, reminding us of what his promises are, calling us back to him, calling us to trust him. And Jacob's on the run, he is screwed up, he's leaving home, he's been a deceiver, and in the middle of that, God is still reaching out to him, promising him. And I would remind you that your failures, your screw-ups, your mistakes in your life, so often it just... we tend to, to then just not even consider God, to think we've blown it so bad that we hide from God, so to speak, as Adam and Eve did. And yet I wanna remind you that in, Joke, in Jacob's time of his life, when he's done this, God is still faithfully moving toward him, promising him. And I promise you that you might sit in the middle of your worst mess up and you feel like God is not going to come to where you're at. That is exactly the opposite of what is true. God is always reaching out to us, promising us. The second thing I would remind you of this is this. What goes around comes around, okay? Jacob's life illustrates that for us. That's why in the New Testament, Paul says, don't be deceived, God's not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. The deceiver was deceived many times. The the guy who tried to get ahead every way ended up at at the end of his rope, I mean, it did not work out for him. He did not live the dream from his own actions. And I would remind you that what you sow, you reap. The law is always true. It's still true in today's world. You cannot sow something and expect to reap something else. It's a spiritual principle. Jacob experienced it. All of us will. And I remind you from Abraham's life last last week, God always forgives our sin but he, ne- he doesn't at oftentimes take away the consequences of our choices. That's why it's so important for us to follow the will and the way of God. Always, consistently. That's where blessing lies. And that's where we avoid the consequences of choices that we make. And Jacob, what goes around comes around. What, so man, what, what you reap, you will sow. What you sow, you will also reap. The third thing I want to remind you of this is this. When we finally give in, we win. Jacob's life was always a struggle, always a struggle, always trying. He finally got to a point in his most vulnerable, broken down. He's getting ready to be killed by Esau. He's, he wrestles with God and he finally gives in and surrenders. This is always the story of scripture. If you and I will get to a point in our life where we're so desperate for God to do something in our life that we're willing to stop our own striving and our own control, if we'll just finally say, God, I'm, I'm Jacob. This is who I am. I, I'm just tired of who I am, God. God will start to come through. He brings us to a point where we're vulnerable and desperate and calls us to just trust in him completely, surrender our lives. The last thing I want to remind you of is this. This is something I always have gloried in in the scriptures. I'll take one verse, Psalms 46, 11. This is said repeatedly through the Old Testament, but this is one verse. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. God identifies himself as the God of Jacob over and over and over in scripture. 
Now, for me, the God of Abraham, I get that. The God of Moses, the God of David. No, why? The God of Jacob. Why? What's he trying to communicate with us? Well, it's this. Your past doesn't matter to God. Jacob was a sordid tale, and yet God identifies himself. Hey, you know who I'm the God of? I'm the God of Jacob. What's that trying to tell us? doesn't matter how messed up our life has been and how many choices we've made that are wrong, how we screwed it up and how we look at ourselves and think, you know what, I'm a nobody and I messed up, I'm second rate, I'm not as good as them or I'm not gonna be as favored as them and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not the God of Jacob, the God of Jacob. That's who God identifies with. You, your past, your, your former decisions do not matter a lick to God. He is your God. You are his children. And you can stand and say, just like he's the God of Jacob, he's the God of me. That's so, so good. Abraham, okay. David, okay. No, Jacob. The guy who was deceiver. The guy who couldn't get out of his own way. That's the God. That's who I am. Your past doesn't matter to God. Father, would you go with us as we go from this place? Help us to take and allow this story to teach us certain things. To help us to have hope and encouragement in who you are. Always faithful, even when we're faithless. The God who, who, uh, who identifies with us no matter where we come from, what we've done, what our lives look like. If we're trusting you, you're our God, just as you were the God of Jacob. Go with us this week. Bless, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great day. Great week.